knows I love travel, but it's usually not this insane. Is it because the book came out recently? I don't know why it is. <laughs> Suddenly I'm very popular, and I'm not asking questions because I enjoy being popular. And I figure by next year, everyone will have completely forgotten me. So, so enjoy it while I can. Well, writing a book about your life is kind of a way of bringing that in. Yes, well, it does. It certainly introduces yeah. people to me, doesn't it? You're also in the middle of working on something at the moment? Yeah, it's a um, an article for, we have a wonderful repertory theater in this neighborhood, the Castro Theater. It's the one where on TV, whenever they cover the Castro, they always have that one stock shot yeah. of the Castro Theater and yeah. Castro Street behind it. And it's a wonderful theater, and I'm so delighted to live here where it's within walking distance. And they have film noir festivals. So um, the guy who puts on the film noir festival, Eddie Muller, has asked me to write something for his film noir magazine about Miss Fury, who, as you may or may not know, I've collected her work into two volumes and written about about the artist, Harvey Mills. And Eddie loves it because it's very film noir. It's so film noir. Granted, you're not always touring this much, but are, are you always this busy in terms of work? It sounds like you, you keep it pretty steady. You know, I have this Judeo-Christian work ethic, very strong, yeah. where I have to be working on something. If I'm not working on something, it's like, well, what have you done recently, Trina? Yeah. I'm in editorial and writing, and I'm lucky enough to have a regular job, but there was a while where, for editorial forces out of my control, I had to become a freelancer. And everyone would tell me, it's, just, it's great, you can go to the movies, work on your own schedule. I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't, I couldn't stand being home and not working during the day when everybody else was. Also, you need deadlines. I always ask for deadlines. I assume you're at a point now where people are approach you with things, or do you still kind of have to chase it down a bit? Well, I do both, really. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if everyone approached yeah. me? But sometimes people approach me, and sometimes I have to approach them. What's the breakdown in terms of doing prose, magazine writing, and actually doing comics? I would like to write more graphic novels yeah. because I love writing graphic novels. People approach me, ask me to write introductions to books, uh, articles about my books, like this Miss Fury thing. I don't have anyone approaching me asking me to write a graphic novel, which I really would like to do. That's so strange to me. Obviously, you're at a point in your career where people would be excited to have you do a forward for their book, but... Why is it that that steady comics work isn't coming? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, everybody out there. <laughs> Do you have ideas? Are you able to actually start? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. There are graphic novels that are in the back of my head, filed neatly, even, <laughs> you know, that all I have to do is open that file, yeah. take it out, and start working. But you're in, in a spot where you can't just start something for fun or start saying I'm in earnest without knowing? You know, I have to. I'm not Emily Dickinson. Yeah. I can't write something and file it in a dresser drawer, yeah. you know. I have to have to have a reason. I have to have someone ask me to do it or have signed a contract to do it. Yeah, I mean, also, obviously, you have life concerns that you have to deal with. You have oh, to work, yeah, you know, like, you know, money and... Yeah, like, yeah, and feeding my cats, that's important. <laughs> feeding yourself and feeding your cats. Cats come first. Yeah. Do you take those meetings? I mean, there are, obviously, you, you have a good relationship with Fantagraphics. I'm sure that there are other oh, publishers. Oh, they're wonderful, yes. Yes, I mean, I, my last two books have been Fantagraphics. Yeah. They're so, God bless them, I love them. My last three books, and other publishers, too. I mean, I have four books out this year. 
you know, which even for me is insane. I mean, even with a strong Judeo-Christian work yeah. ethic. So, yeah, I have good relationships with publishers. And Hermes Press, I'm doing a signing for my book, Babes in Arms. Have you ever heard of the Rosie the Riveter yeah, of course. National Park? Yeah. Well, I'm doing a signing there and a, and a presentation on my book, Babes in Arms, which is published by Hermes Press. And what I've done is I've taken, I've written about and reprinted the work of four women who drew comics during World War II, hmm. because for comic books, it had always been a very male field. Yeah. Not the comic strips. You know, if you've read any of my histories of women cartoonists, you know that they were doing comic strips. I mean, the earliest comic that I found by a woman is from 1896, but these were for newspapers. But when comic books originated, they were very, I mean, look, you know, superheroes, yeah. you know, they were very much aimed at little boys. Even Wonder Woman was created by a man. Oh, yeah, yeah, but he created it for girls. Yeah. But what happened during the war, as in every other industry, was the guys went to war and the women filled their places in factories, on assembly lines, building ships and, and planes, and drawing comics. So for the first time in comic books, you had more women drawing for comic books than ever before. And Babes in Arms... I collected the work of four specific women who were not necessarily the cream of the crop, but really, really good, and maybe they had, maybe they're more collectible. Yeah. But there were other women too. So I'm doing a presentation for the Rosie the Riveter National Park, and that will be that's going to be so much fun. Hermes has already asked me to do another book, and I have been too busy to actually write a proposal for the book. It sounds like these days the things that people are approaching you for mostly are these histories. Histories, yeah. That sounds like they'd be pretty fun to write. Oh, they're great to write. I love writing. Yeah, love research. Yeah. For anything I do, funnest part is research. In the underground scene, you were one of very few women. In the very beginning, I was one of two. Did you find that you were seeking out those earlier examples? I didn't even know about the earlier examples. Nobody had written about women who drew comics. Yeah. When... It's always been that way. I mean, it was that way in 1970, and it's still that way, that when guys write books about comics, they want to write about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and yeah. Spider-Man. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so nobody really even knew. I mean, the common belief among men was that women had just not drawn comics. Poof. And um, so I set out basically in 1985, co-writing with Catherine Ironwood, I set out to disprove that, and I've been disproving it ever since. <laughs> Those earliest examples uh, dur during the war when men were all fighting and, and women were drawing those books, do you find that they had a distinct style or distinct take on things, or were they attempting to kind of emulate what the men no, were doing? women have a definite distinct style. Yeah. Whereas I can't say I'm such an expert that I can look at a comic and say, that was done by a man or a woman. It's a close guess. It's usually yeah. a close guess. For me, it's personified by the, not anymore, because things have really changed, revolutionized. Yeah. But let's say from the, the 1940s through 1970s, DC house style. Because, you know, both Marvel and DC had their own styles. Mm -hmm. And the DC style was very, for me anyway, it was, although, of course, the 
men were perfectly good artists. It was very angular, mm. very hard edge and angular. And for me as a kid, and even later, unattractive and made me not want to look at it. Whereas comics by women are rounder. I know this sounds so Freudian, but it's really, it's true. <laughs> they're rounder and they're softer. And if you look at Ramona Freighton, who was the only woman who was working for DC, you know, mm. back in the old days, you can see how different her style is from men's. It's very clear, very clean. Nowadays, this has changed. We've really undergone a revolution in comics. Yeah. And there is so much more what I call girl-friendly. And not just by women, but by men, too. You know, really just more open styles, more friendly styles, more inviting to look at. And, of course, the stories go with them. A lot of the stuff that was happening when you first entered comics was the R. Crumb sort of style was really highly hypersexualized. At least from the outside, it didn't seem particularly women-friendly. I would not call it hypersexualized. I would call it um, mis misanthropic. Yeah. Not, I'm sorry, mis misogynist. Misogynist, yeah. I was being kind. <laughs> Violently misogynist. Yeah. Hypersexualized is completely different. Yeah. If you look at the 90s, which was the, the absolute peak of what they called bad girl comics, those were hypersexualized. Yeah. Those were also unpleasant, I mean, embarrassing for a woman to look at, you know, but they featured like the giant breasts and the teeny waists and the little bare butt, you know, costumes. Yeah. And, the Rob Liefeld. And the, the strange, yes, Rob Liefeld, yes. Um, the strange poses, you know, that, yeah. that Kate Beaton calls, yeah. calls breakback, which is brokeback, which yeah. is so perfect. That's hypersexualized. Misogynist is comics almost always underground especially early underground, where women are depicted as humiliated, raped, tortured, murdered, and all is supposed to be very funny. That's misogynist. Yeah. Was it hard for you to see a comic like that and be friends with someone who was drawing it? Was it hard to divorce those two things? At a certain point, we weren't friends anymore. I yeah. mean, these guys did not take criticism well. And when I would say, you know, this comic in which the woman is, is humiliated and raped and murdered is not funny, yeah. they would say, you have no sense of humor. And around this time, I was, of course, becoming a feminist. This was when the women's liberation, second wave feminism happened. And these guys were incredibly threatened by feminism, like, God, were they threatened. I mean, it got back to me. Things they said got back to me because I did have some friends. So that I know that there were times when I would be, people would see me approaching and guys and they would say, here comes Trina, hide the knives. You know, which is ridiculous. I didn't want to cut off their little dicks, you know. So those two things really kind of happened for you around the, the same, same time? time yes. Yeah. And maybe what these guys were doing was in part their reaction against the new yeah. feminism. Wow, suddenly women are standing up for themselves. We've got to do something about that. You know, well, we, we don't want to kill them in person, but we sure can kill them on paper. Being one of, as you said, one of only, only two women at the time, you know, did you feel like early on when you were trying to make a name for yourself that you kind of had to silence that side of yourself? The funny thing is that in the very beginning, when I was drawing under comics, I mean, if someone had asked me to sit and count the, the sex of the various cartoonists, of course I would have seen that they were all guys. Yeah. But 
I wasn't thinking in those terms. I wasn't thinking, wow, they're all guys, and, and Willie Mendez and I are the only two women. I, and I wasn't thinking that until it was brought home to me by the fact that they were excluding me. And that was when I started realizing, oh, they're all guys. When did you move out to San Francisco? 19, well, December 1969, but almost 1970. I usually like to say 1970 because it was almost 1970. Yeah. And it was just the place to be at the time? That's where the, the underground comics publishers were. Before that, our underground comics were all in newspapers, underground newspapers. Yeah. Which is, you know, people wonder why underground comics, that's how they got their name. They were in underground newspapers, yeah. duh, you know. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, there were these companies in San Francisco publishing comic books. Not, not, com- not comic strips in newspapers, but real comic books, just like mainstream comic books, except when you opened them up, they were completely different. And that was the print mint. Um, it started with the print mint, but there was um, Apex Novelties. That was Don Donahue. Mm-hmm. He was the first publisher of Crumb. Um, later, by 1970, there was Ron Turner. Yep. When your early idea of actually being able to potentially draw comics for a living, did you think you were going to be a strip artist? I didn't even think of it as something to do for a living. I thought, I mean, you know, artists don't really think I'm going to yeah. do this, make this painting and grow rich. Yeah. You know, I did it because as a form of expression and because I wanted to do it. The same reason that artists paint pictures. If you were invested in it enough to move to San Francisco, you were already taking it very seriously. I was by then. I realized that it was a, it was a national movement, Yeah. maybe an international yeah. movement, and, and it was just very important to me, but I still was not thinking in terms of making a living. But prior to seeing these actually collected as comics, obviously, you know, you've been reading comics since you were really young in strips and, and books. At what point did it dawn on you that that was something that you could actually really do? That really was the first time that someone had done an underground comic book. Yeah not just an underground comic in a tabloid or a newspaper, but in a real comic book, like the mainstream comics. That was definitely the first time it dawned on me, like, oh, wow, you can do this as a comic book. Yeah. That was amazing. That was, you know, it was like a revelation. And the idea that there were, thematically, that you could move outside of what you were able to do in a strip. In what way thematically? Well, the, the, you know, the subject matter that, that they were dealing with, whether it was you know, their real lives, or it was just it was things that you couldn't deal with in a comic strip. You mean a mainstream comic strip? No. Well, well a mean? comic strip oh, versus a... Oh, you mean an a... extended story. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, of course, because you, you, know, you had more than four or five panels. Yeah. What were you working on at the time? What did, what did your stuff actually look like before you moved out here? Um, okay, the very first comics I did... Mm-hmm. Really didn't make much sense. The <laughs> earliest underground comics did not make much sense. Yeah. They were just funny and cute and pretty and whatever the artists wanted to do with them. But they tended to be rather abstract. I don't mean visually. I mean, you could see that there's this little guy walking down the street with big feet. Yeah. You know, but, but there was no story yet. Were you working against the idea of a narrative, or did you just not know how to tell a story at the time? Oh, I probably knew how to tell a story, but I hadn't even tried. 
because I wasn't thinking in those terms. Yeah. I was thinking in doing a very decorative comic that was that expressed me and was completely different from anything that you would find at a newsstand, you know, published by Marvel or, or DC or any of the others. Now, obviously, you can go to SVA or any one of these schools. You can go online. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. When you saw these things and decided this was something that you could or at least wanted to do, what, what, are, what were the first steps back then to actually becoming a cartoonist? You just did it. <laughs> there were no schools. Yeah. You just did it. You just drew some squares on a piece of paper? and Depending on how you started. Yeah. You know, I mean... I, in the very, very beginning, I didn't even know you were supposed to pencil first. I just picked up a magic marker and started drawing. And I assume you were drawing for yourself originally. At what point do you decide that these are good enough, or at least that I want to attempt to put these out into the world? I didn't think of those terms either. I see you have not written my, read my book because my book yeah. describes how I wound up publishing the very first published comic that was in the East Village Other. And here it is. Yeah. It's kind of a proto-comic. Yeah, that was right at it's, the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have seen it. Well, that was my first published comic, and I didn't even do it to be published. Hmm. I did it because I had met the East Village Other gang. It was 1966, summer 66. I had met them, and I did this little comic, and I just wanted to give it to them. And there was no one at the office. I slipped it under the door, and they published it. So you move out to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Obviously, rent prices were very different than oh they are God, now. Oh, my yes. Were, you were able to just move out here without any job? Uh, well, I was pregnant. Yeah. And I thank God for welfare. I mean, it's the equivalent of, you know, of course you have to have a baby. But, I mean, in, in <laughs> places like Holland, if you were an artist, the state gave you a certain yeah. amount of money to live on while you did your art. In my case... The state gave me an amount of money to live on because I was a single mother. Yeah. But it also meant they were supporting me and allowing me to do my art. With a child on the way, though, it wasn't. You weren't thinking about. Can I get a more serious job? No. I mean, first of all, I was going to have a baby. Yeah. That's a full time thing. Sure. You know, they don't have crushes like they do in Europe. Yeah. But anyway, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to make comics. Yeah. You thought you could support yourself and the child, or you just welfare would kind of get you through it it did welfare yeah. paid for it let's, so I, let's actually talk about sitting down and, and writing the book is this something that you had been working on for some time I prior been wanting to do this for some time yes because yeah. as you said before you have a very good memory for yes. these things are you somebody who takes notes are these were these based on oh, journals no, no 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 you just sat down in uh-huh. earnest and started writing you work chronologically through your life i started at the beginning and ended at the end <laughs> And then I'd go in, I mean, once the whole thing was written, I'd go in and add stuff, you know. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't name that person's name because they'll sue me and stuff like that. Was it just the realization that you had have lived a very interesting life that people would want to read about? There was a lot of um, untruths going on mm. about me in the media. Such as? Um, well... I got really tired of people telling people I did not create Vampirella, that all I did was design her costume. And there were several women who told untruths about me, um, just as a person. Uh, you know, 
and I really needed, you know, and they told the, these untruths in print. I needed to clear these things up. I just needed people to know the truth about me. You said early on these problems that you were having with a lot of the men in the scene, mm-hmm. a lot of these, these anti-feminist sentiments. Were, were the women in the community also trying to kind of take down their well, own? Well, you know, not all women had become feminists, yeah. or still, but in those days especially. And a lot of them were the girlfriends and wives of guys in comics, and they believed what their boyfriends and husbands said about me. They believed that I was a feminazi bitch. They were anti-feminist. A lot of them have changed, you know, and I would not even bring it up to them because that's rude. (laughs) Although I did bring it up to one woman um, in San Diego at the uh, Eisner Awards. She was there, and I had just gotten a... Well, I had gotten an Eisner for uh, the Women's Comics Collection and also accepted an Eisner for Harry G. Peter, who is no longer with us, but who, you know, created the style, who drew the first Wonder Woman. And she came up to congratulate me, and I just I just had to tell her, because it was something I'd never forgotten. I said, you know, back in the early 70s, you once said to me, Trina, you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. And she just laughed and said, I, I had a lot to learn in those days. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I, I, mean, I can't believe that. About you, seem so nice. <laughs> I am nice. I am nice. <laughs> you, you feel like there's just a lot of kind of residual. I don't know if anger is the right word, but just from from those earliest days, things that have followed you for for decades. You mean my residual anger? No, or people. Their th- they're anger? sort of these weird ideas that people develop most, with you. Most of them, I think, have. Well, the guys, I don't know. But yeah. the women, I think, have mostly changed their mind, but not all of them. Yeah. That's the problem. There's some who just never liked me and never will like me. Yeah. You, you think that just writing about certain subject matters, there are t- t- people who are just going to hate you without knowing who you are? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, on the Internet, I haven't heard from them recently, but I used to hear from these boy fans really absolutely hated me because I dared criticize uh, superhero comics or dared criticize Crumb. Yeah. You know, they just hated me for it. You've been sort of um, entrenched in this the whole time, you know, for for a lot of people, I, I probably include myself, you know, there's a... I, I, I think this is something that probably comes with privilege, but there's a, there was a sense that I had gotten that things had at least gotten better, but then I'll... You oh, know, but they the, have. Well, they have, but also... In a lot of ways, they have, but in the last couple of years, a lot of this stuff has really resurfaced. You know, a lot of the, um, I don't know how closely you follow it, but a lot of the Gamergate stuff. Mm. Things that I yes. thought thought we had moved past. You know, there are guys, there will always be these guys, yeah. always. They want their own little hole. They want yeah. their own little club and really just hate women. Simple as that. And don't want women in their club, ever. And when they see women getting privileges get very threatened yeah. there will always be these guys who are threatened always they can have their club but the problem becomes when their club is comics you know or their club is video games when exactly <laughs> and they they don't want to share their club yeah. i always felt that when i criticized superheroes that these guys and they were usually young you could kind of tell they were young you know that they were afraid i was going to take their superhero comics away yeah well i don't have that kind of power and i wouldn't <laughs> anyway they can keep their superheroes yeah i just we need to join the, the club, too, you yeah. know, with our comics. 
how important was Wonder Woman? I loved her. I loved her recently because of the movie and because somebody finally figured out that I was actually the first woman to draw a Wonder Woman yeah. comic. I've gotten a lot of, of publicity for that. And as I say, by next year, everyone will have forgotten me, so I'm not complaining. You know, I'm accepting the publicity. It's nice. But I have to say that as a girl, I probably discovered Wonder Woman at about 9 or 10. And, you know, for me, the most amazing thing, because I didn't, you know, how much history do you know at 9 or 10, especially ancient Greek history? I didn't know there had been Amazons. What a revelation that there had been an island full of beautiful warrior women. Not as much of a revelation nowadays, you know, people, you know, everyone knows Amazons, and, you know, there was Xena, God, I loved Xena, yeah. but we didn't know any of that then, and it was incredible to know about the Amazons, but it wasn't just Wonder Woman who I loved, I absolutely adored Chino, Queen of the Jungle, and really did want to live in a treehouse with my pet chimpanzee and swing from vines. Yeah. How did your working on Wonder Woman, how did that come about? They asked me, um, you know how they do these major things that include all the different characters so that you'll buy all the comics, crossovers, yeah. So it was Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, And they had just killed off like like about half of their characters. You know, Wonder Woman had dissolved back into clay. There's going to be at least, um, I don't know how many months, six months, something like that, till George Perez was finished redoing her, completely redoing her. And he did a lovely job, by the way. So it was like they must have had a meeting. I mean, the way I see it is all the editors sitting there having a meeting saying, what shall we do? Because if they don't do Wonder Woman, the Marston family will get it back. That's in the contract. You did know about that. Everyone knows that. So somebody must have said, well, what the hell? Why don't we just give it to Trina? We know she loves Wonder Woman. Even if she fucks it up, you know, it's only four issues and George Perez will come (laughs) back and fix everything. So I'm sure that that's what they did. It was well known at the time that you were... Oh, yeah. Everybody knew what a Wonder Woman fan I was. Yeah. Sure. For you, it must have been a very interesting career move. I mean, you had read read superhero comics, but... I didn't like superhero comics. Wonder Woman was the only superhero I liked. Growing up, you didn't didn't like... No, I didn't even bother with them. Yeah. the, The superhero guys were... They bored me to tears. They had short hair. They weren't pretty. They were really (laughs) dopey. I still think that superhero costumes are so dopey. They look like skin-tight leisure suits, you know. The horrible colors, bright green. You know, give me a break. Things I would never be caught dead in. Wonder Woman's costume was cute, especially when it was a skirt. How do you sit down as somebody who is, again, not a, has not traditionally been a huge fan of superhero comics and obviously hadn't worked on them at the time, how, how do you get in that mindset? Did you did you go back and read a lot of the older books? Well, I, I was collecting the early Wonder Woman comics. Those are the ones I loved. Yeah. And that's why I did it in the Harry G. Peters style, because I loved his style. I loved the early ones. Yeah. And that's what I... I forget which editor it was who told me they'd like me to do it. But I said, well, I would have to do it in the Golden Age style. And he said, that's fine. It's funny. The only way it really worked was that because... George Perez was coming on and taking it over earlier, so you literally, you not only had a clean slate, Mm -hmm. but you didn't have to worry about what... Continuity, style, And and what came after Mm -hmm. you. It worked because they just, they kind of, in a way, they kind of gave you the case of the kingdom. Yes. It was just four issues that stood by themselves. Did you find that that changed your... I mean, obviously, it brought you to a larger fan base, or at least a different fan base. Oh, yeah. 
what sort of feedback were you getting? Were you getting that kind of pushback that we talked about earlier? You know, communication wasn't what it is now. Yeah. We're talking about the 80s. Nowadays, you have instant communication. If I do something, I immediately, I I put up my notice yesterday on Facebook about the signing I was going to be doing at the Rosie the Riveter National Park. And before I had even finished, I was getting likes, you know? Yeah, But in those days, um, (laughs) we didn't have that kind, kind of communication. Yeah. So, yeah, people... People liked my book and told me so, but it wasn't, you know, you had to do it by letters, you know. Having been in that world and experienced that side of things, were you not surprised in recent years when a lot of this has kind of come back up to the surface? When you sort of knew it was there all along. Of course. Yeah. Does it surprise you the, the breadth of what's been happening? I've wondered if we would necessarily have Trump without Gamergate. the same thing. It's the same force. Those people, as I say, those people have always existed. And the more women make a progress, the more threatened they are, of course. Yeah. Of course. So Trump and Gamergate go together. They go together. It's because we, the women, and people of color, you know, and gay people, people. Who, and gay people, LBGT people, because we're making strides. Well, every time we make strides, they're frightened. They're yeah. threatened. It's different in the way that it's become. It's become mainstream in a way that it, it seems like it hasn't been in a couple of decades. I think that's only because we know about it now because of the internet. Yeah. Instant communication. It was always there. We just there wasn't that instant communication. But there's a sense of empowerment that they have that can get someone like Trump elected. Wherein, like as bad as and he was very bad, but as bad as George. Debbie Bush was. He wasn't Donald Listen, Trump. Listen, I would, I would give anything if we could have Bush back. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, 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 I will say that I, I, there's no way that, that a Trump could have gotten elected without the internet. I think you're right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What, what do we do? <laughs> Trina, what do we do? Save us. Well, I'm still patiently waiting for him to be impeached. Yeah. And the other thing we do, of course, is resist. Yeah. I mean, I'm not changing and you're not changing. We don't change. And in fact, I think he's been very good for the women's movement because he was the direct cause of the Women's March on Washington, which was absolutely glorious. Women, women standing up for the first time and saying, I'm a feminist, going on protest marches for the first time. Women who'd never done it. I've been doing it all my life. Yeah. You know, I started with Vietnam, you yeah. know, so it's like, oh God, here we go again. But, you know, women who'd never protested before, women who'd never stood up and announced they were feminists before. One of my strongest memories. I'm going to get emotional, excuse me, was a woman sitting in a tree. She had climbed into a tree, and she was shouting, show me what a feminist looks like. And as we marched under the tree, we were saying, this is what a feminist looks like. And she was, she was already hoarse. She'd been shouting it for so long, and it was beautiful. It was yeah. beautiful. And Trump is responsible for that. Yeah. Obviously, you have to sort of weigh the... Uh the very clear downside of that. It's nice that he's mobilized people, but as bad as I feel, I'm not going to be immediately impacted by this situation, but there are people who are going to. You know, we're seeing it with with DACA. It's great that a resistance is building up, but meanwhile, people are being immediately affected by the situation. Yes, I don't know short-term what, if anything, can be done. Well, we resist. Yeah. I mean, we resist. It's what we do. And, you know... Luckily, for instance, here in California, I'm so grateful to live in California. I'm so grateful to live in San Francisco. They're going to shelter immigrants, you know? They're not, they're not going to let these these 
good people be deported, mm -hmm. not here. I admire the fact that you've been involved for as long as you have. For a lot of people, protesting is something you do when you're young and you grow out of it or whatever, right? You put on a business suit and you, and well, you leave really, it. really, as long as one can walk, one can protest. Yeah, yeah. And as long as I don't have to take too many hills, I can still walk. <laughs> Do you ever feel a sense of futility, though, when things move cyclically the way that they seem to? More exasperation. Yeah. You know, futility would mean, I think, oh, it just isn't doing any good. But we have. Yeah. We have changed things. I mean, look, pot is legal here. I don't know. You live in New York. I don't know if it's legal in New York yeah. yet. But Gray I bet area. they're not busting people. You know, yeah. even before it was legalized here, people were walking down the street smoking pot. And, you know, cops have better things to do than to bust a perfectly nice, ordinary citizen yeah. for smoking a joint. You know, pot is legal. Abortion will stay legal here even though Trump and his right-wing cohorts are trying to to get rid of it, they won't be able to, not here. You know, I, I, I love my state. I love my politicians. <laughs> not all politicians are bad. Jerry Brown is terrific. Gavin Newsom, who's going to run for governor, mm -hmm. I will volunteer for him. He's wonderful. I marched with him in the Gay Pride Parade. I was delighted to march with him. I'm in New York City, so I'm in a very similar bubble to the one yeah. that you're in. That is sort of the, one of the problems, though, that, that we run into is when, when we see that things are getting better around us, that's when we kind of forget this anger that's coming from you know, other areas from the middle of the country, and I think that's sort of what has made things so divided, right? We're happy living in our worlds, and they're dealing with their own thing, and then all of a sudden... We fall asleep and wake up, and, and Trump's been elected. Well, that, I have to say that's true, because, you know, none of us really dreamed this would happen. Yeah. You talked about how you saw the election results in Brooklyn. We saw them in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> My partner and I, I were going to Hawaii. We voted early so that we could go to Hawaii. And I actually contacted, and we were on Maui, contacted the Maui Democratic Party and said, hi, we're volunteers for Hillary, and yeah. we're coming to Hawaii. Can we watch the victory party? Can we attend the victory party with you? Because we just, of course there's going to be a victory. And they said, sure, yeah. they were welcoming. And so we all had to sit there. I sat there with these nice Hawaiian people watching Hillary lose and watching MSNBC the, the journalists, the reporters, they were dazed. They were dazed. Yeah, I think remember, it was Rachel Maddow. And yeah, <laughs> my God. I don't remember who it was, but yeah. one of them at one point just kind of sighed and said, geez, you know? Yeah. Obviously, it was very surprising at the time, but in hindsight, are you surprised that that's how things went? I am still surprised, still surprised. and I do believe, I truly do believe that Russia may have tampered yeah. with the with the election, but I think that the main reason that she lost was was sexism. Yeah, was, was because she's a woman. And I think racism played a role too. I think I think people were really angry over eight years of Obama. Yeah, I was just going to bring up Obama because it's hard to figure out really who they hate more: Obama because he's black, or Hillary because she's a woman. Yeah. But they hate them both so much. Do you still have faith that we'll see a woman president in your lifetime? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to die tomorrow, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, not Hillary, but that's okay. You know, I saved a lot of Hillary buttons, and I'm going to start wearing the one that says I'm with her. Do you think that comics are, or at least can, again, be a, a force for for change. Once upon a time, they were the, kind of the height of that, that countercultural movement. They're more mainstream than ever now. Do you think that they can be something that is used to really affect change? I don't think underground comics were 
ever, with a few exceptions. I don't think they were ever very political. Mm-hmm. I mean, their politics consisted of off the pigs. Yeah. And of course, anti-Vietnam, because the guys didn't want to go out and be killed. Yeah. But that's as political as they got. Yeah. You know, and let's all smoke pot legally, of course. <laughs> Women's comics was more political, but because, of course, we were women and we needed abortion to be legalized. We needed... You know, we were feminists. I mean, that much, you know, we were. Yeah. Writing this memoir, once you once you finish, once you had, in a sense, kind of relived all of these parts of your life, what kind of mind space were you in when, when you finished it, when you had gone through all of this, when you had, you know, again, sort of gone through, through these I decades? When I finally tweaked it to death and said, yeah. there's nothing else I can fix and yeah. change. More like, well, it's done. Yeah. Were you able to take pride in, in, in what you had done? I'm very proud of this book. So the book, but also the book is also an opportunity for you to really look at everything you've done over your career. I have a chapter called What I'm Proud Of. Yeah. And I'm, those are things I'm proud of. Yeah. You know? Was there anything at the end when, when you finished that it did it dawn on you that there was anything you still feel like you really need to do? Well, I ended with discovering my father's book. If you've read that part, mm-hmm. you know that my father wrote in Yiddish. Yeah. And that he wrote a book in Yiddish that I thought was just lost, you know, one of the lost books of the Western world. And that my wonderful daughter found it on the Internet and that I read it and turned it into a graphic novel. You know, do know all of that. This book ends with me deciding that I was going to turn that book into a graphic novel and also realizing that I was my father's daughter. And that's a realization I came to writing the book, really. What does that mean? My father's daughter? Um... And even my own daughter has inherited his green thumb. Yeah. He had a green thumb. He was he lived in the city, but he he came from a little poor village in what is now Belarus. Although we we lived in Queens, and he had originally lived in the Lower East Side. He wanted to move to Tom's River, New Jersey, and have a chicken farm. It sounds bizarre, but for some reason in those days, Tom's River, New Jersey, was a hotbed of Jewish chicken farmers. Like a kibbutz? Uh, something like that. <laughs> and he wanted to do that, but he never did because it was just impractical because yeah. my mother was teaching school and there were two girls who needed to go to school and, you know, and there we were in Queens. But he had a green thumb and... Um, I, I have very early childhood memories of during the war. My father had a victory garden. You know, what they did. It's like the neighborhood gardens, yeah. you know, that people free spaces, throw. Yeah. There's free spaces and people grew vegetables there. Yeah. And, of course, the fact that he was a writer. And here I am. I'm a writer. I don't know if you noticed the, the garden, our, our sidewalk garden, but mm-hmm. that's the work of my daughter and me. We even grew vegetables briefly. When we started the sidewalk garden, we planted corn and, and grew pumpkins. And it was a lot of fun, but also we had no idea. I mean, we were really learning to talk about urban farmers, and the pumpkins just took over, and the vines were yeah. snaking out all over the sidewalk. Yeah. I had to keep cutting them back. <laughs> In hindsight and from the outside, this all seems very obvious. I mean, of course, th- those parallels are there, but you were too close to notice them? Yes. He was a bit of a proto-hippie, it sounds like. He was very much. He was very much, yes. Yeah. And he also liked comics. Yeah. Was there a sense of rebellion against your parents, or you just never really... Uh, I never disowned them, and I always loved them, even, yeah. you know, but I didn't want to be like them. I, well, you know, I was being a hippie, and it didn't occur to me at the time that he was a proto-hippie, yeah. but of course he was. Yeah. Do you see yourself staying in San Francisco forever? Where else would I go? If you live in San Francisco, where are you going to yeah. go? 
Yeah. Hawaii, I suppose. Paris. But yeah. No, Paris has winters, you know. I, I spent some time in Santa Cruz. You know, I could see you uh, moving out to the mountains. Mm, no, no, I'm not a mountain girl. Yeah. I'm not one of those. Hawaii. Yeah. I do love the tropics. Um, but you need the city? Yeah. Yeah. If I did live in Hawaii, have you traveled in Hawaii at all? When I was a child, mm. we took a family vacation. Well, Hilo is where I would try to live. Hilo is the closest yeah. they come on the Big Island. I do love the Big Island because it's got more more changing weather and geographical changes because it is big. Uh, and Hilo is is kind of the bohemian city. It's where, it's a dusty town, really, really old, dusty town with ancient buildings. But like you'll go to a cafe yeah. there and you'll see tacked up on the bulletin board, you know, writers group meeting, you know, women's group, you know, planning to take the trek up to watch the sunrise on top of Haleakala, things like that. You still need to be around like-minded people. Yes, of course. Yeah. The reason why I ask that is because, you know, I've been writing about comics for years and years now, and, and it's really interesting. It's such a, the act of making comics is so solitary, but then when you get up from eight hours of working, you do need to, someone to talk to. I couldn't live without cafes. Again, as Trina Robbins recorded that at a cafe by her place in San Francisco early on a Sunday morning. Her new book is called Last Girl Standing. It's a memoir out now on Fanagraphics. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to Jack at Fanagraphics for helping set that up while I was on the West Coast. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the show. If you like the program, there are a few ways to support us. You can uh, like us on Facebook. You please uh, rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, we uh, we have a Patreon as well. If you want to send a couple of uh, bucks our way, we're actually losing money doing the show right now because it uh, costs money to host a podcast when you are not running ads. Uh, what else? You can send us feedback. It's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us over on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. And that's all I got for this week. Got a ton of shows lined up. Very excited to bring them to you guys. So stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.